Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. It's from the Daruriyat al-Shara'a, uh, Ghazali says, from the necessities of the Sharia, right. governance. Um, Ibn Taymiyyah says that, la qiyama lid-dini wa la lid-dunya illa biha, that the, illa bihi, that the, there's no, you can't organize, you can't establish the deen or the dunya except with, with this pillar right. of the deen. So it's, 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 it's given this significant importance. The issue of the caliphate has recently made a resurgence within Muslim discourse. For nearly 100 years, the Muslim ummah has been without a caliphate, and many have come to view that the world of empires is behind us, and we now have to embrace an era of the nation-state. Yet the issue remains a live one. Islam and Muslims have remained tortured by our lack of ability to resolve some of the most intractable problems we face, leading to the suggestion by establishing a post-nation-state bringing together our resources, our people, and our potential. My guest today, Dr. Uthman Badr, has been thinking about the concerns of the Caliphate for some time. He's the lead editor at the Umatics Institute. He received his PhD in philosophy from Western Sydney University in 2023, where he currently teaches. He is also an active member of the Muslim community in Sydney, Australia, with over two decades of engagement in grassroots activism and dawah. Dr. Usman Badr, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, and welcome to The Thinking Muslim here in Istanbul. Wa alaikum as Thank you very much. I'm, it's an honor and privilege to be here. Well, thank you for, for joining us today. It really is uh, wonderful to, to see you after such a long time. Now, the issue of the obligation of the caliphate is a vexed one. Many contend that the caliphate is behind us. So I want you to set out the normative Islamic position on the caliphate. What is the case to say that the caliphate remains an obligation and has always been an obligation? Thank you very much. Uh, very important topic and um, I'm pleased to be uh, part of the discourse on this. Um, the caliphate uh, as an obligation um, normatively speaking, is, is to be honest, rather uncontroversial. 
amongst Muslim scholars, classical, contemporary. Um, that doesn't mean there are other aspects of the discussion around methodology and details and form on which there is a difference. There is, and that's uh, to be discussed. But on the obligation and the concept and its part in Islam, this is rather uncontroversially um, accepted to be the case. Um, the caliphate, it's probably worth starting off with a basic understanding of what we're talking about, the, the classical definitions around the caliphate um, are of two types, I would say. One is the idea that it is a general leadership, a general governance, we might say. So someone like Imam al-Juwaini and others define it as the Asa'ama, um, a general leadership to organize the affairs of the world and of the deen. Um, and then other scholars have just said, well, that definition may also apply to prophethood. A prophet is a general leader. General, he means without restriction, without qualification of all people and in most, if not all matters. Um, that would apply to a prophet. So others like Mawardi um, qualify this by saying it's in succession of the prophet. Right? So, so basically the Prophet ﷺ fulfilled certain roles. One of them was to receive revelation and the other we might say was to execute or implement the revelation to organize society at all its levels on the basis of the revelation. With his death, وسلم, the revelation stops, but that role to implement the revelation remains. And so that's in terms of the need for a leader to organize all of that. That's the role of the caliph, that's the role of the, the khalifa, the imam, the abir al-mu'minin. And um, as to its obligation as well, this is something that um, is virtually without dissent in the tradition. There is some dissent, um, but it's, 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 it's well, in, in, the, in the tradition, in, in the Islamic tradition, or in the classical fiqh, we talk about mu'tabar uh, and ghayr mu'tabar khilaf. So some difference of opinion um, is considered, literally, uh, it's worthy of consideration and others is not. Um, in this case, the, the, the dissent comes from um, not not even like, I can't say the Mu'tazila or the Khawarij, but certain groups within, certain minority subsets of these heterodox sects. There were some dissent, people like Al-Asam, um, the Najadat of the Khawarij, these groups, which are not even known, to be honest. You have to name them for people to know, but otherwise... There's a very, to give an example, there's a very um, nice articulation of this from Ibn Hazm, right. who says that, you know, all of Ahl Sunnah and all of the Shia and all of the Mu'tazila and all of, like, he'll name the various sects, agree. And then he would just say, minus, you know, with the exception of these, these and these groups. So yeah. um, it's an obligation. We can talk about the basis of that in the Quran and the Sunnah. Please, yes. The discussion yeah. amongst the scholars as well. And of course, the scholarly literature, um, maybe we can start there. You will find that if you preview the classical literature mm. that deals with this topic, it comes up in a number of areas. And I would say primarily in three different subsets of the classical literature. Yeah. One, one, one is theological treatises because it became an issue. Like a, lot of the, a lot of the debates amongst um, the sects that arose in early Islam centered on issues uh, of, the, of the imam, of the leader. Does he have to be fallible? Is he unfallible? Um, can he, you know, re rebellion? Mm. So there's a fact there was a lot of very real political issues of a political nature that gave rise to debates and therefore 
the issue was addressed in theological treatises. Mm. Apart from that, it's also addressed in your fiqh literature, mm. of course. Yes. Um, uh, under the relevant chapters, so you come to a chapter on uh, the hudud or a chapter on rebellion or a chapter on imara and imama, mm. literally, and, and this will be discussed. And then you've got, as a subset of the fiqh literature, you've got uh, specific um, writings on this topic, right? So, which is a, it's a smaller subset, but uh, still, there's quite a few works here, starting with Al-Mawardi in the middle of the 5th century, yeah. Hijri, Al-Juwaini, and others who write, in other words, specifically on this topic. So you've got fiqh manuals that are talking about everything, mm. and they'll come to the topic, and then you've got treatises that are focused on this topic. All of them, the common point is they'll start off by saying, this is this is an agreed upon matter. This is an obligatory matter. Mm. This is something. Not only that, like it's not just an obligation. Um, scholars will say things like, this is a hammal wajibat, the most important of obligations. Really? Yeah, it's it's a pillar. It's from the daruriyat al shara. Ghazali says, from the necessities of the sharia. Right. Governance. Um, Ibn Taymiyyah says that... Um, that the there's no you can't organize you can't establish the deen or the dunya except with with this pillar right of the deen so it's 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 given this significant importance can, can I ask so, so why does he stress the difference between deen and the dunya what, what's the what's the emphasis he's well, because making you there? might think that this is something that's required by the deen ah. whereas the dunya can be organized otherwise or right. some might think the opposite terms right some people may think along more Secular lines, yeah. Uh, that if this is this is a matter of organizing political, economic, social affairs, yeah. It's not something to do really with the deen, and we actually got this view very late. Uh, modern thinkers, starting with Ali Abdul Razak okay. and others, uh, took that type of a view. Yeah. But he's saying no, it's both. The deen requires it, and the dunya requires it. Right. And in a way, that's setting up to the, you know enumerating these areas. But of course, we know that. Uh, in Islam, that distinction is only for analytical purposes. Right. Otherwise, there's a coherence, and we don't we don't in origin. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that in origin we don't make the difference or the distinction in secular terms. Yeah. So that there's this domain that is Islamic and this other domain. There is crossover, and uh, there is um, the two are inextricable in many regards. Now I'm trying to understand uh, the debates about the obligation of the caliphate in the context in which we live today. I mean, I said in my introduction, we we now have a hundred years, or we're coming up to a hundred years without commemorating uh, 1924, uh, the point at which the last Islamic caliphate uh, was uh, was destroyed or was was dismantled, and um, many within the Muslim community have come to a view that maybe Islam can thrive without a caliphate. Make a case for why Islam is deficient. You know, you used Ibn Taymiyyah and Ghazali's quotes there. What, what is it about the deficiency that exists today in the absence of a caliphate? Yeah, um, that's a very good question. We can, and we can approach it, we can understand it in a number of ways. Um, the first would be to say, you know, the the cliche, the trope that Islam is a comprehensive way of life. Right. If it's a comprehensive way of life, which we take for granted, right, which means everyone understands this, you know, the child on the street understands, the Muslim on the street understands, it's comprehensive. Yeah. Then you can't have this, um, 
you can't have these divisions where governance, economics, and everything that comes with governance is somehow outside the purview. Right. Which is what it would mean if you say that this is that this is uh, that the caliphate or that governance politics, however you want to talk about it, yeah. is auxiliary, mm. is supplementary, is good to have. Yeah. Uh, then you're putting these significant aspects of life outside the the purview of the din, and so obviously it's no longer a comprehensive way of life. The other way to understand it, I think, which is related, is that uh, you know life is lived as a coherent whole. Again, even here, when we make distinctions between individual and collective, between public and private, yeah. between even between realms, social, economic, political, a lot of which are quite modern distinctions, by the way, Yeah. as an aside, uh, these are for analytical purposes in origin um, and then for organizational purposes, mm. for manageability, depending on the particular distinction. But otherwise, life is lived as a coherent, coherent whole. Yes. So um, you know, this, the, the reason I'm making this point is if we can approach this from a theological perspective, you know, Allah Ta'ala's sovereignty is, doesn't have a limit. And so, um, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran says, uh, That when that, you know, when Allah is mentioned to decide on a matter, any matter, mm. the believing man and the believing woman don't have a choice. Mm. But in other words, they, they submit. That's what makes them a Muslim. Yeah. Allah says, what he, Whatever the messenger gives you. So, in other words, there's no distinctions there between public, private, secular, non, you know, din, dunya, these things. These are some, the Sharia and other texts will make certain qualifications, but in origin, uh, they don't exist in that manner. And so Islam as a complete way of life, um, Muslims as people who submit to Allah, generally speaking, and not, you know, we follow the Sharia in these areas, but these other areas, we just do our own kind of thing. Yeah. Um, uh, shows establishes that um, the, the, the this is a matter that's part and parcel of the din, and um, likewise when we look at the case, if we come to look at the case from the Quran and Sunnah's perspective itself, you'll find that the the the, the issue of governance and the issue of the caliphate is almost, is almost presupposed. Um, we can come to this now. I'm not sure if you want to talk about. Uh, because a common contention or a common question, uh, contention, I guess, when it comes from the outside, mm. Orientalists have raised this question, but some Muslim scholars, um, in more recent times, yes. um, and common Muslims, the thought can come to mind about, about why there are not explicit uh, evidences. Well, well let, yeah, let's, well, let's talk about that because uh, we know that uh, the common obligations in Islam. There'll be multiple texts that describe these obligations, right? And, you know, this is uh, you know, rudimentary. A Muslim uh, studies in uh, the madrasa at a very early age, and they'll find many ahadith and many Quranic ayahs about salah and about fasting. Um, when we read the Quran, or at least a reading of, our, of, of the way we read the Quran, could be that, well, where is the explicit text that says you need to have imara? You need to have state. You mm. need to have government. Mm. Yeah. What, what's your what's yeah? Your take? No, it's a good question. Um, I think part one of the things that not well understood here, which sometimes give rise to this question, is that the Sharia and the Wahi and Islam in general is not an abstract philosophy. Mm. So the form in which the commands and the and the principles and the morals come, uh, speak to concrete realities. Right. 
Um, and so if something's gonna be if something is completely new or significantly new like solar, it will come in multiple times and be explicit. And that will also indicate its priority. Yeah. Um when when we talk about governance, first of all, there are let me say that there are sufficient texts to which you cannot read in the totality in any other way to say that this is a necessary part of the deen. Yeah. Let me give, say that. Give me an example. Well, uh, the, the example that the scholars will start from is the ayah that says, Ya Allah wa Rasula, what will you minkum? Oh, you believe, obey Allah and obey the messenger and those in authority amongst you. Okay. Um, and so there are people in authority and they need to be obeyed. And this is in the context of Sharia and the Sharia being applied, so on and so forth. So um, very clear. And then obviously there are other uh, ayat that are not speaking about explicitly about imara, but it's just it's just presupposing it, right? Right. So ayat about war and ayat about peace and ayat about 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 punishments, for example, hudud punishments, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, ayat that enunciate ahkam rulings, which it's clear mm-hmm. and there's no difference of opinion that these are not applied by individuals; they are applied by an authority, a political authority. Yeah. Now. Sometimes it, this is the idea, and I want to come back to the point about the concrete uh, reality to which the revelation speaks. Uh, sometimes it's presupposed, it's it's understood or it's assumed that ex- being explicit somehow makes it more important than if it's presupposed. But presupposing something is 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 a way of uh, articulating the importance of it. Right. It doesn't need to be said. This is so clear. Right. That's when you presuppose something. Right, so if we look at this from, let's say, uh, a very fundamental um, ontological would be the technical word. I'm trying to avoid technical terms. Mm-hmm. You know, philosophers debate the existence of the external world. Right, mm-hmm. the revelation doesn't at any point say, you know, the trees around you and this and stuff is real. Don't it's not something else. It's just taken for granted. Right, it's presupposed. It's part of the fitra. Yes. Right, and that's a that's a different level of presupposition but it would it's not correct to uh assume that something which is presupposed is less important in a way it's not being explicated because it's so clear yeah. now but why is that taken if you think about it the prophet ﷺ, when he came to mecca um and when the relation starts it's a tribal society mm-hmm. um and so something new is going to take place which is that the sharia is going to enunciate the idea that you, you can have these tribes but you need a central leadership as well so that is enunciated. But what happens is the Prophet ﷺ is the central leader. Right. And so prophethood and governance come in one. Okay? And so everyone is told to obey him. To obey him, to give allegiance to him, to follow him. And it's it's wrapped up. The prophethood and the imam is wrapped up. Yeah. The question of the imam only arises after the passing of the prophet. Right. Now, in this respect, first of all, there are numerous ahadith in which the discussion of the imam, the mention of the imam is, is made, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. The imam is a shield. You fight behind him and you seek protection with him. Uh, they will come after me, the Prophet said, they will come after me, imam, some will be good, some will be good. Numerous, like tens if not hundreds of hadith that mention the imam. Yeah. Uh, the Prophet instructing us to give allegiance to one after another, one after another. Right. You can't have two, you have to have one, yeah. right? Um. But, 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 Nevertheless, in the age of Wahi, the Prophet is the leader. And so he's not given the title of the Imam, he's the, he's the Prophet, mm-hmm. the Nabi, he's the Rasul. Mm-hmm. And this, 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 uh, the explicit um, 
coming or the advent of the Imam comes after him. Okay? And it comes and it's, and, and again, this is, think about the time when the Prophet passes away. The discussion that the Sahaba have, and there is debate and there's some controversy, is about who is going to take that role. Right. There is no discussion about whether we can just bypass this and not have a leader. And in fact, the scholars, when they discuss these in the treatises that I mentioned, this is the point that's oft made. There was no debate about whether we need to have one or not. Yeah. The debate is on who it's going to be. I think there's one part where the Ansar um, in Bani Saqifa, they say, well, why can't we have one for you and one from us? Yes. But even there, no, it's not to say, you know, governance can be uh, foregone. Let's just live our Islam, yeah. right? And leave the issue of governance. The decision is one from us, one for you. But straight away, Abu Bakr cuts that down and says, you can't have two. It has to be one. Yeah. All right. So the debates are around those particulars, but there's no debate on the question of that we need to select someone who is going to be the general leader and organize the affairs in this way. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's literally taken for granted, apart from the various texts that mention it. And these are, these are the basis of the scholars all saying it's an obligation. Right. So anyone who kind of, anyone who has this question or objection that it's not explicit uh, really needs to contend with why the scholars are by consensus saying it's an obligation. Where are they getting that from if not the Quran and the Sunnah? So I think that needs to be considered Is as well. the obligation to have some form of political authority or does the obligation uh, specify the need for a caliphate? Um, okay, now... If we take caliphate there as a particular name, hmm. we're talking about the word itself, then not necessarily. Right. But if we take the caliphate to, to, to be the label for the Islamic or the Sharia form of governance, then yes. In other words, the Sharia says you need governance, but it then goes on to talk about certain parameters of that governance. So it's not like you need governance, can be anything. You know, mm. take it from Rome, mm. take it from the Byzantines. It's not like that, right? No one right. argues that. Right. Uh, it's you need governance and here are the basic parameters. So for example, governance is meant to govern by the Sharia. Right. Okay. So if we enumerate just the fundamentals, even leaving aside the details, and we refer to that as Sharia governance, Islamic governance, and that's, the, that's what we give the name the caliphate to, then yes, mm. we're talking about the caliphate. What's the difference between... Um, the Pope in Rome in the pre-modern era and the Caliph of Islam. Is there a distinction? Is there a separate? Is there a difference between the two uh, positions? Oh, absolutely. Um, predominantly because, however, because Christianity um, in its formative phase, in its early years, in, in the years in which its political theory or uh, its theory around governance forms, you have this, you do have a clear separation between the temporal authority Right. Which is which is in Rome, well they're both in Rome, but it, which is with the emperor and the spiritual authority, which is with the pope. Okay. So in other words, you have this very clear uh, distinction between two authorities, and then there's a, there's a long theological debates around how they work together, who's on top, who accounts who, mm -hmm. which is in the early church, and later on, I I had to study a lot of this because of my dissertation. Uh, because this formed part of the history of secularism and the development of secularism. Yes. Uh, because of that, there's a difference. So, but that's a good way of describing that difference and showing what the difference is. Where in Islam, both those authorities come in one. Like the 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 the, the, the Khalifa is 
both the spiritual and the or the religious and the temporal authority at once, right. which reflects Islam's not 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 making that so sharp a distinction between the two. Mm. Um, that's not and that's not to say I know there is a some from some quarters and some scholars there's concern, um, which is understandable in the 20th century of totalitarianism. Yes, right. That this is this is this is totalitarian. It's like what so every single aspect of our life is is um, is governed in that way. But I mean, I, Muslims understand that in origin, yes, Allah's sovereignty doesn't have a limit and the Sharia doesn't have a limit. Hmm. That doesn't mean that it comes to tell you the specific details of every single thing that you do in life. There are areas, there are, in fact, let me be clear, there are many areas in life where the Sharia basically says, you decide. Right. This is a matter of expertise. This is a matter of where, you know, uh, you need to understand the particular reality, economic, social, political, you know, our analytical distinctions. Uh, so there's a lot of room where human thinking is not only allowed but encouraged to flourish. Yeah. But the point is uh, the Sharia will decide what those areas are. It's not a case of, you know, if I, if I think of in terms of, let's say, cups, our two thinking Muslim cups, <laughs> it's not a case where here are two different domains. Sharia is here, spiritual, religious, and temporal, Right. Uh, it's rather that, and, and 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 somehow this temporal domain is self-defined, or it's defined by some other parameters. No, the Sharia will determine, will it define this for us? And we'll tell us, here, here are the areas in which uh, human thought and rationality is, is to flourish, mm. and things to be left. And the Sharia won't tell you the answers. Mm. Allah won't tell you that He knows everything. He's not going to tell you the answers there, right? Work them out. Yeah. Empirical areas, studies, sciences, lots of lots of areas. Right. So I think that's important um, because some people do think that, you know, they've got this uh, understandable paranoia with totalitarianism. Yeah. But we, although we want to learn from experiences in the 20th century, you don't also want to import um, foreign experiences and assume that we have the same problems as what has taken place in the West. I, I want to ask you about that um, from a historical perspective, but also what we can learn from the West if we can learn anything. I mean, liberalism... You can say, you know, a, a very important component of liberalism is to is to try to understand the pathology of power. Absolute power mm -hmm. destroys absolute power. Authoritarianism mm -hmm. is a, you know, the overreach of the state is a very problematic idea in mm -hmm. liberalism. Now, a Muslim living under the caliphates of old, what would be his or her relationship with the state on a day-to-day -day basis? Will the state have a very direct impact on their lives right down to, you know, their, um, uh, the laws in which they, they have to abide by uh, is centrally deduced by, you know, a, a caliph sitting in Istanbul or sitting in Baghdad. Um, like what is that relationship? In, in modern states, there is a very strong relationship between the citizens and mm. the leader. Mm. Um, was that the way in which the caliphate transpired in Islamic history? Okay, there's, there's there's a couple of questions there at least, and let's let's unpack it. Yeah, because when the, the as you were asking, I was thinking, I said there's an interesting juxtaposition or an interesting um, uh, reality here where you're right, liberalism has this uh, concern mm. about power and the excesses of power, but at the same time, it's the modern liberal state, which is um, whose power has seeped. So deep, absolutely right. So there's, yeah. there's, there's something of an irony or a, yeah. or a contradiction there. But um, 
we talk about the caliphate, the caliphates of old were not, I mean, in terms of the reach of the state, it was limited, mm. naturally. It's not just the caliphate, the empires of old had limited reach. Yeah. Um, in terms of their, just their ability to do that, but also in terms of whether they wanted to. I mean, there is we we have got a new philosophy with the modern state, the secular state, and how much it tries to refashion the world and how deep it goes. Yeah. Caliphates of old didn't do that. Uh, Islamic uh, Islamic caliphate power was um, diffused, diffuse, decentralized in many respects. Yeah. Um, some because of technological limitation, but others just because of that's that's how it's set up. So, um, well, that's how it developed. Mm. It's set up and developed, right? So, for instance, a lot of power rests with the ulama, okay? Because because by definition, the caliphate is a Sharia governed state. But who who are the um, interpreters of, of the Sharia, mm. right? Who are the gatekeepers of the Sharia? It's not everyone. Mm. Scholars have a, have a, a frontline role. And could be scholars in different regions have differences. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right. and then and then there's a, there's another layer. There's a number of layers here. Yeah. Another layer would be the fact that um, so much of the ahkam, so much of the Sharia is is open to interpretation. Right. In fact, the vast majority uh, of the Sharia is open to interpretation, which means there's room for uh, multiple readings and multiple interpretations. And, and so the within Khalifa, limits. Right. So the Khalifa would allow. Would enable. I mean, is is this, is this within like the picture you're painting? Is that just the preference of most of the caliphs of past, or is there something within Islam which uh, mandates that the caliph should only apply or only implement a central law when it's very required? Uh that can be argued. So this is where there's a debate. Okay, and there's different views. Um, and again, we would have to talk about particular. Uh, aspects as I, I what I refer to as the layers. So right. the difference of opinion is built into the Sharia, mm. so to speak. The nature of the texts, the way they've been articulated, the way they've been revealed, is that the temptation, which means that that was the that was the maqsud, that was the objective mm. to leave this room um, open and therefore to allow for multiple manifestations of how we pray and how we fast and how right. we do. Anything really. So the caliph wouldn't interfere in those yeah, and religious the, aspects. Yeah, it wouldn't interfere in those right. aspects. Yeah. Um, uh, definitely in the in the sort of ibadat, he would. They wouldn't do that. And in mm. fact, when they did that, even with uh, say theological debates, the result wasn't good. Right. So we have the mehna as a yeah. as an example. Yeah. Um, amongst others, so some things are definitely in, within the structures of the Sharia. Okay. If you will, um, other aspects there would be. There are historical realities, right? So, if you, I, when I made the distinction, when I when I said that power was diffused because scholars, uh, you know, scholars have a significant role, and scholars are not in power. Yes. That that fact is a historical contingency. It's a it's a it's a it's the how history unfolded. Okay. All right. Qadr Allah. Yeah. Uh, if we go back to the model of the early Rashidun, it's not like that. Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman and Ali are, you know, scholar par excellence and ruler par excellence in one. Yes. And and I think most, if not all scholars, would agree that that is the model. Right. In principle, that's the model. The details and the forms obviously change over time, but in principle, that's the model. So it's a fact of history. But it could be argued that, you know, uh, this if you look at Islamic history, the global view, mm -hmm. that's 30 years. 
compared to the next 1200 or 1300 yes right so we could you could be argued that historically that model um has a difficult has, has a much harder feasibility so it operates more as a what we call a regulative ideal yeah or an asymptotic ideal right which is that you're meant to aim for it but historically we know that you're not more often than not you're not going to achieve that and so power will be just diffuse some will be with the authorities some will be with the scholars yeah um some will be with influential people in society yeah um and then as a matter of preference you will get uh, different views about uh whether more centralized or less centralized what's better and this we can have a debate we can learn mm. from history mm. so can we learn from the west yeah we can we can learn from the west as well um in certain areas as opposed to other areas and mm. the distinction i made earlier between um uh, or the fact that the sharia leaves certain areas it defines and then leaves certain areas of human life mm. for human thinking and human rationality and an understanding of reality yeah. empirical study in all those areas we can learn from the west as opposed to norms morals uh, which uh, we take from the Sharia exclusively, mm -hmm. but in all these other areas, historical experience, uh, what thing works, what things work, how they work better, we can definitely learn from the West. And this takes me back to your question about um, liberalism. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we know that liberalism in the current age is um, its its influence on Islam and the Ummah is by and large problematic, and we need to be wary of that and uh, push back and, and the rest of it. But when we think from this perspective, from an intellectual academic perspective, as scholars learning from human experience, liberalism is no different than any other human form of ideology, mm -hmm. way of life, political theory, right? Which means that it will have things we can learn from. It will have things that we will look and say, you know what, that that's good. Um, and for instance, if you if you look at uh, medieval or pre-modern societies in terms of uh, the political activism or the political participation of common people. Uh, and you compare that with the modern times, we can see an element of progress. Right. Because uh, whether it be the caliphates of old or whether it be the empires, European empires, other empires of old, um, large numbers of the masses had nothing to do with they were just com almost completely divorced from what's happening in the center, mm -hmm. right? Now, that's that's a historical fact. But if we think about this from, you know, we take the norm from Islam. What does Islam say? Should people be involved or not? Yeah, you know, and this is something that uh, I think uh, a lot of people involved in work first time in governance, Islamists, Islamist spaces, discussions, conversations, uh, will say that people should be involved. Right to one extent or another. Yeah, and so, uh, in other words, the, the the democratic, the democratic move that takes place in modernity, mm. although obviously clearly we disagree with the ascription of sovereignty to people at large, but otherwise the empowering of the masses to other extent has been deficient. Right, obviously yeah. we we know that uh, to many extent uh, one aspect of this that people participate in nominal ways mm. but there's an ideal there's active citizenry active citizenry yeah. um you know being an active citizen participating mm. um having concern that ideal is a good thing yeah right okay. and so you can learn from these experiences yeah. certain ideas will be closer to um what we have but it's just that we haven't 
been able in at least in the last hundred years, yeah. we've been away from from power. And so yes, you can learn from Western and other experiences. So let's return to the discussion about obligation. Now, when we think about obligations in Islam, you know, I suppose we we think about obligations as personal and achievable. Um, the obligation of the caliphate, which you've described very well, uh, seems to be beyond our achievable abilities. Um, how much are we accountable today for the absence of a caliphate? That's a very good question. Um, and also one that I think um, gives rise to certain misunderstandings about uh, the priority of this work and mm. the priority of the topic. And I think what's underlying this is just an understanding of the difference between communal and individual obligations. So mm. you said that when we think about obligations, we think about them in, in, in terms of them being personal and achievable. Yeah. That's true of individual obligations. It's not true of communal obligations. So these are fardain. Fardain, yeah. fard kifaya okay. is, the, is the technical terminology. Yeah. Um, so fardain, yani the obligation that applies to individuals, okay. each person, and the the kifaya, fard, fard kifaya, is the obligation of sufficiency. Mm-hmm. Communal basically means it's a, it's a communal obligation, uh, and therefore some people can carry it out. Not okay. everyone has to get involved necessarily. Okay. Um, and so the point is that the premise to the premise to that line of thinking is speaking about individual obligations, mm. but it's applying that uh, to to all sorts of obligations. Yeah. And so what helps here, I think, is to think about other communal obligations that we we accept. Right. Mm. Um, uh, one would be to do with uh, jihad, the war and peace, but that also becomes a bit abstract now in our current situation. Yeah. A knowledge is another one. Ishtihad is is another example. Okay. Ishtihad is a is a fard kifaya. Um, for the vast majority of the ummah, they really can't do anything in that in that realm, right? So it applies to scholars, even then a sort of subset of scholars, and uh, and so on and so forth. So the, the the point would be that yes, obligations need to be achievable, but when we're talking about communal obligations, we have to start thinking about them as a community, as an ummah. So now if you say, if we're thinking, and so it's a different register of thinking, Mm -hmm. and we need to do that. This is, I think, part of the problem here is the um, seeping in of a sort of liberal, really a a liberal atomistic type of thinking where we're thinking as individuals. We're thinking on an individual level almost always. And that's understandable because the, the collectivity, this is tied to the, Dissolution of the caliphate, mm. because with the dissolution now, what what establishes that commun the, the communality or the community uh, in concrete terms mm. is dissolved, right? And so, and then obviously you got migration and Muslim diasporas, and uh, we still obviously have. I'm not saying we don't have any elements of community. We do the the ibadat community. We have Eids and Ramadans and whatnot, mm. but the the the, the the societal elements, the stuff of economics and the stuff of uh, governance and all that stuff has been uh, severed. So communal obligation, we need to think in the register of the community. And so the question becomes, is this achievable for the ummah? It's no longer the question, is this achievable for me and Jalal and, you know, a small subset or for the scholar? Is this achievable for the ummah? Yes. Um, and at that level, I would say, yes, it is achievable. Is it? going to happen tomorrow probably not is there a lot of work to be done yes mm-hmm. but 
think about it in these terms. Does the ummah have the resources, the talent, the ability uh, to take its own affairs into its to take its own affairs in its hands in the Muslim world? Of course it does. Mm-hmm. Right? When you put it in those terms, like to say no would be really to enter into uh you know, subconsciously or unconsciously enter into Islamophobic tropes, mm. which 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 is what um, make possible the thought that Muslims are somehow deficient. Other people, Westerners, can you know organize their society. They can deal with power and governance, and you know, but Muslims, no, we can't do it. Why can't we do it? Of course, we can do it. Mm. So, I don't think any self-respecting and uh, aware Muslim would argue at this level that it's not possible. It's possible. The question then becomes, well, what needs to be done? Right. What's the work? How is it to be done? You know, where can different people contribute? Does everyone have to contribute? Mm-hmm. You know, is the lay Muslim and the scholar or the academic at the same level in terms of what they can do? All of that, I think, is is the second level. But the starting point really has got to be thinking at the register of the ummah and thinking, can we do this as an ummah and being very clear that, yes, we can. So so let me, let me get that straight. Um, in the same way, say, for example... Um, there is a need for a group of people within a community, within each community, to have a scholar who can extract uh, the dalil, extract the hokam from the dalil, the, the the ruling from the dalil, or a group of Muslims who take it upon themselves to bury the dead in the community. And so you you professionalize it and you you hire people who would do that. So not everyone is engaged in that mm-hmm. work, mm-hmm. but a group of people are doing it. But yeah. ummah, the community, need to invest in, need to help, need to assist in creating groups of people who are thinking seriously about this matter. Is yeah. that is that what you're saying yeah, about the yes, kifaya? Yes, um, in origin, yes. Yeah. So it's a fard kifaya, and what you said applies to all fard kifayas. Okay. That's why they're defined in that way. Yes. Literally, kifaya means from kafa, it's sufficient. right? So it's an obligation that, first of all, Allah Ta'ala has not associated uh, with with every single person mm. or with specific individuals, mm. but rather uh, with with a specific subset right. of of uh, people who are more relevant to it. But in origin, it's it's on the ummah, right? So it's if, on the community. If if for example, let's let's talk about the, those who are capable in a second. But let's say, for argument's sake, those who are capable were not engaging in this work. Mm-hmm. Then the responsibility of the entire ummah would be to develop those capabilities or That's develop right. those people to help those people to give money to them to to set up you know institutions for them yeah. so that they could seriously take it upon themselves to engage in this work so let's then talk about who has the capability like in your mind um who is most uh, maybe i'm phrasing this wrong but who is most obligated to think seriously about the caliphate Okay, just before we come to this question, I, yeah. I had something else to, to before we miss, just so there's a structure to the discussion. Sure. Um, um, I was saying that the caliphate is like all other obligations, all other uh, kifaya fards, yeah. fard kifayas. There is one sort of uh, thing that needs to be added there, I think, which is that um, our, our reality post the caliphate, uh, and particularly hundred years later, attaches attaches to this a sense of urgency and priority that otherwise may not be there. Right. So, in other words, we've already said the scholars say this is a very this is a very important thing. This is a pill of the din. Mm-hmm. This is a necessity of the din. That's always the case, right? 
but the distinction that I think I'm thinking of here is, uh, let's say 500 years ago or a thousand years ago when Mawad is writing, um, and he's talking about the obligation, he's talking about in, in, in a certain different sense. And, and a very good point, a very important point comes up here that he mentions explicitly. Mm -hmm. He actually says, uh, which is an ex what we're talking about, right? So he says, it's an obligation. It's a fard kifaya. Mm -hmm. Then he says, but who does it apply to? Who's the mahkum alayhi? Right? Who's, who does the hukum apply to? And he actually says, this applies to two groups of people only. Uh -huh. Two groups of people. One, uh, the eligible candidates, those people who are eligible to become the imam. Mm. Right? Like, this is concrete. This is fiqh, right? Fiqh is concrete. Mm. It's like, there are a certain subset of people in the center of power in Baghdad, say, for example, at the time, yeah. who are going to be considered to be the imam. The nobles, the political elites. Yeah. Even yeah. even like even though with people within them who right. will be because it's it's a, it's a particular role, right? And then the second group is the ahl hali wal aqd, the influentials who will choose who will appoint the okay. imam. So in other words, he's he's delimited this quite a bit. He said there's a certain you know there's people who are eligible for the imam, and then there's these people who will appoint him. Mm -hmm. He and and he then literally, he literally says the obligation is on them. And if they delay it, he actually said, if they delay it, the rest of the Ummah is not accountable mm. in these terms. Now, he's, the, the thing is that he's speaking in a certain reality where what he's talking about is succession succession of the Imam. Right. The system is in place, right? The system, the Khilaf is in place. The, the institutions are in place. Mm. The Qadi, the Chief Qadi, the Qudat are in place. You know, the, in other words, that a polity, a governance, a system is is a complex entity. Right. It's got various arms and various institutions. They're all in place. But we're talking about here in this in this context, and in most of the literature that I mentioned earlier, yeah. the fiqh manuals, and they're talking about this reality. They're not talking like the the dissolution of the caliphate is not a concrete possibility. Is it a rational possibility? Of course, it's not a concrete possibility, right? And the indication of that is. You don't have, there's almost, uh, it's very difficult to come across scholars discussing this as a reality and what, what would happen and what ought to be done. Jawaini comes the closest in Ghiyath uh, al-Umam, where he throws up certain hypotheticals about what would happen if uh, there's no imam, mm. and then what would happen if there's no scholars either. And he, it's, it's a very um, insightful work from that perspective, but... Uh, even there, there's not an explicit discussion of if there's no imam, what, what do we do in order to re-establish the imam? Anyway, the point being that the, the, the classical scholars are discussing this matter in a particular context, right? Right. And so what Mawardi is saying and what others after him, the Shafi is generally are saying, um, I would argue that this is to be understood in this sense that it's about appointing the Khalifa when the system is in place. Mm. And even then... Uh, in origin, the obligation, like ishtihad, will be on scholars. It's not on lay people. Like, what's the lay person going to do? Yeah. Right. Um, however, if if this group doesn't do anything, then yes, others. It's not that the others will then stand up to take their place, but you have a duty coming out of a separate fard kifaya, which is to enjoin the good and forbid the evil, mm. to push these people to say, "What are you guys doing?" Right. We, you know, this is an account of this is an accountability that yeah. uh, we we have on our on our back. So. Now, what happens when the, 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 the Khilaf is dissolved however, in the 20th century is now be different. Right. Our task today is not to appoint a Khalifa. Yeah. It's to reestablish almost from, we're starting almost from a blank page. You're right. In many ways, more analogous to the Prophet's example in Mecca than to yeah. 
anything that happened in medieval times. In that area now, the roles become a bit broader, more people are involved, but it's still, yes, it's still going to be a certain, uh, certain subsets of the Ummah. So who, who that are, in the Ummah would okay. be? So I think even here, it's important to think about the task first okay. before talking about who would do it. Because mm. we need to know what, what are we talking about? Mm. And sometimes I think this is also a problem where we kind of aggregate um, um, the idea. We've got this very broad idea. It's okay, working to establish the caliphate or Islamic governance, and it's like this blob. Mm. And it's like that. And it's and then it's obviously going to feel very difficult. It's going to sound very very tough. The first step I think needs to be to disaggregate the particular tasks that are involved into broad areas, and then obviously subdivisions and the rest of it. Mm. Um, when we do that, then we can talk about it. So, for example. What are the areas? I would I would suggest that I can think of at least three broad areas, three broad tasks, buckets, if you will, that are areas of work that we need. For example, number one, and this is not in order of priority, but number one would be intellectual work, academic work, aimy work. Yeah. That tackles the question in creative and you know daring ways that are that are both. Um, um, you know, working with our tradition, starting with the tradition, yeah. but, you know, learning from knowledge that we, as what we spoke about earlier, from others' experiences, from modern knowledge that we can take from to answer the questions of what the caliphate looks like in the modern world. Right. What does Islamic economics look like? What does social policy look like? Right. Um, how, how can we imagine the forms of Islamic governance in our time? Yeah. Knowing that historically the forms changed, the forms evolved over time. They weren't always the same. Right. So in other words, it's like any other area of the Sharia, there's fundamentals, there's fixed matters, and there's a lot of matters that will, will, will evolve and change. So there's a lot of work to be done there. Now that's intellectual work. Who's going to do that? Intellectuals, scholars, hmm. right? academics, thinkers, thinkers in the broad sense. Yeah. Right. That would include both ulama in the sense of scholars of the Sharia, there's a big role there, hmm. but also academics with with the uh, area experts as we call them so so let's just uh, you know uh, flesh that out a bit so mm -hmm. at the moment today we live in a world where uh we live in a globalized world we have a an economic system which we can broadly describe as capitalist um uh muslim scholars and thinkers have to have to think about have to develop a model of islamic economics yep. in view of the world in which we live, uh, stay, sticking to our uh, our principles, our principles of Sharia, but at the same time, you know, aware that uh, a caliphate uh, should be responsible for the general well-being and the wealth of its people. Yeah. Um, so this requires right, economists, scholars who are versed in Islamic economics, but yeah. as well as that, Muslim economists. Yes. Okay. Yeah, and Muslim, so scholars of Sharia. Yeah. Who, and ideally, you want. Um, people with both expertise. Okay. Otherwise, it becomes sort of siphoned off. Yeah. But yeah, in other words, scholars of Sharia, uh, economic experts, people who understand economics. Yeah. Not only that, people who understand political economy, sort yeah. of the philosophy behind economics. Yeah. Because again, e economics is just um, a lot of these. A lot of these categories are, are modern categories. Mm. It, it, the idea of economics doesn't exist pre-modern. No. It's not there. Yeah. Although Aristotle spoke about economics, it's a different context altogether. Different. Uh, in a different worldview yes. altogether. Now, never, so you need these experts, 
um, and in, in broader fields to come and think about these questions. And you're right, there are there are fundamentals. Mm. Sharia will tell us you need this, this, and this. Reverse haram, for example. Yeah. Right? Uh, but the work we need, again, is at, is at a few levels. So, you know, fiqh, generally speaking, whether we're talking about governance or any other area, yes. it's the task of fiqh to deal with the concrete realities of the time. Right. Right? And you have to deal with them. You have to, okay, here's the starting point. Here's what we got. How do we go from what we got, what we want? How do we go from what we have to what we need? Right? And how do we work with that? Um, so we need we need the ideal economic models. Right? But because of how radically things have changed in modernity, how important economics has become, for example, and how different the forms are, um, Islamic economics is going to look different to what it did in pre-modern times. So we can't just rely on uh, economic texts or texts that may have discussed economics in some shape or form from, from history. We can't, we can't copy-paste them. Okay. They are part of, they're an important part of the conversation. Right. In many ways, there'll be a starting point. Yeah. We'll look to see... Uh, and in fact, there'll be a learning point more than a starting point. Starting point with the Sharia, hmm. um, but for, for for the empirical side of things, there'll be a learning point to see how, for example, someone like Ibn Khaldun or um, other medieval scholars, um, Kitab al Kharaj, Abu Yusuf, hmm. and the Hanafi Madhab, uh, how they were dealing with the changed economic realities of their time. Right. Right. Things moved. What did they do? So you learn from that. Yeah. Uh, but you, but what we need is not copy pasting. We need to um, do what they did. Okay. We yeah. need to redo what they did. Scholars need to redo what they did. So let let's move beyond the the experts, those thinkers, those intellectuals that you describe. Who else needs yeah, to do? Yeah. So okay. One clear task, one bucket. Yeah. Is intellectual work, mm. academic work, mm. uh work. Let's say mm. another area that I think is rather clear is. Uh, what we might call activist or dawa work. Mm. Okay. Why now? Why? Because, and this it's just a matter of thinking structure in, in a sort of structured manner. We need the models, but if I have the models, say I've worked out a significant part of the models, now what? It's, that's just intellectual output. Yeah. It's in the books, it's ink on paper. Right. How's it going to transfer to the real world? Right. So now you need, um, you need work out there. Um, that convinces people that we need to implement this stuff. So these are advocates for advocacy, advocate work, advocacy yeah. work, activism. Mm. There's different words that we can mm. use. Mm. Dawa in Islam, enjoying the good, forbidding the evil. Yeah. But even here, I think it's it's helpful to think about the the people that we're trying to convince at two levels, mm. right? Uh, and all these categories, um, this is um, this is a, a contribution to the conversation. Sure, these are not fixed categories. Yes. Anyway, um, at two levels, number one, certain people have more influence in politics, in economics, in so people. Certain people are movers and shakers mm -hmm. in the world. Mm -hmm. um, khawas, right, in the classical Islamic terminology, mm -hmm. and other people, the awam, common people don't have that much influence, okay? So there will be a difference here. In other words, if I want to, I'm, I'm, th I'm thinking about how I can move to execute certain models that I've come up with. Yeah. Uh, clearly, people in the political class, politicians, rulers, um, other intellectuals who may not have been with me and working this stuff out, 
leaders, leaders, could we could use that terminology, right? Are going to be more influential. Yeah. So in other words, this dawah or this activism work or this advocacy work uh, will, will be needed to be done amongst influentials. Let's just use that for now. And amongst the common people. Right. Right. More broadly, let's say, in the ummah. Um, and even outside the ummah. So now we've got two other levels, right? So people have to do this. Soon now, the point of doing this would be when we talk about who the obligation applies to, we can now ask the question of who has the capability to do this? Okay. Clearly the intellectual work, the capabilities with intellectuals, but not just the people who are scholars, students. Yeah. Up and coming students, people who have the talent to become the students, right? And so it will be difficult to close this off, okay? But nevertheless, we can think about it in concrete terms. Um, and then at the, the second bucket that we've described in terms of advocacy, a wider, a wider group of people can do this, mm. right? Uh, some people are very good at intellectual work. They're not, they're not good with people. Yeah. They haven't got good social skills. They're not good at, as advocates. Other people are good as advocates. Some people can do both, right? So there is, in other words, there'll be intellectual work, there'll be advocacy work, dialogue work. And I think that would really be the, the main two areas. Okay. I said three, I think, originally, but because I'm subdividing the two. Sure. Yeah. Because I think it's an important distinction to make between advocacy work amongst influential people and ad advocacy work amongst uh, the, the wider, the wider yeah. people in right. the Ummah and outside the Ummah. So uh, let me understand this from a, a perspective of a, an ordinary Muslim who may live in the West, may live in a Muslim world. Let's not make a, a, a distinction at this stage. Um, an ordinary Muslim who has uh, life's concerns, but also very basic obligations they've got to meet, obligations towards their family and their community. And of course, uh, in many ways, Muslims have got the back to, back to the wall. We've got issues, uh, intellectual issues within our community where we feel that Islam is being challenged mm -hmm. in, in a way mm -hmm. uh, today, in a very rigorous way in which um, uh, many of our young generation, younger generation are, are somewhat leaving Islam, or at least uh, they are disconnecting from, from the deen. So with all of these challenges and issues in, in front of us, um, how should an ordinary Muslim, so let's talk about this third category that you, you referred, how should an ordinary Muslim uh, weigh up the obligation of caliphate, mm -hmm. which is a sort of obligation that's out there, mm -hmm. a kifaya obligation, and those immediate problems they face? Yeah. Um, it's, it's a good question. Um, and I can see a, a concern that is a very valid concern behind it, that, um, the, that the, that the, the idea that the, this work somehow monopolizes, uh, our concerns and everyone has to be involved in mm. that type of thing, which is to take the very correct obligation priority, but to manifest in a certain way, which I think is problematic. Um, Okay, there's a few points. Number one, the fardain has priority for everyone. Okay. Okay, so individuals have to get their fardain in, in order. Mm. Um, but beyond that, you will, most people, everyone perhaps will have some mm. communal obligations that they contribute to. Right. Okay. And then people will have their own capabilities where they can, you know, which communal obligations they can do. So I think as, a, as an ideal or theoretical model, It'd be fair to say that everyone has to do their fardain, uh, but ideally also everyone should be contributing to the communal obligations. But we have multiple communal obligations, mm -hmm. right? The, the work to 
political work, political activism, the work to uh, that, that concerns Islamic governance is not the only communal obligation. Mm-hmm. As you said, we have, um, and again, concreteness of Islam is important here. What are the challenges facing the Ummah now? There are multiple challenges. Some of them uh, will overlap or will have some connection with the work for governance or the work that relates to governance. Some won't. Right. But it's got to be done. It's an obligation. It's a communal obligation. So um, the, the, coming to your question then, the, the, the common Muslim needs to, to, to work based on their capabilities. Um, and like in all other areas, they will ask the people, if you're not sure, you can ask uh, uh, imam scholars for guidance on this. But, and everyone's, this is why you can't give rules, uh, fixed uh, sort of templates here because everyone's situation is going to be a little bit different. Uh, but this is what you want to aim for. You want to aim to make sure that you're uh, fulfilling your personal obligations. Yeah. And then you're seeing which communal obligations you can contribute to. That's from an individual level. From the Ummah level, uh, the religious of thinking as an Ummah, we want to make sure that all our communal obligations are being fulfilled. Okay. And we don't want this situation where some are left or where some monopolize all the others. So let, let me, let me uh, paint a, a more practical picture here. So yeah. you've got like a businessman in the community. Um, he uh, recognizes that there are multiple challenges his community faces. There's an absence of, say, Islamic education. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a an issue with the westernization, let's call it, that of the Muslim community. Um, um, so he's now thinking, like, where should I place my money? Where should I practically contribute? Mm-hmm. So he's going to contribute to his local mosque. He's going to develop local seminaries, maybe. He's going to develop organizations that may... Uh, deal with uh, some of this inter- these intellectual challenges that the mm-hmm. Muslim mm-hmm. faces. So he's he's spreading his money around uh, those activities, and he's actively engaged in, in a few of them as well. But he can't be doing everything, yeah, right? That's why. So uh, he now hears uh, from a you know a person like yourself that look also caliphate is an obligation. Yeah. If he said, all right, let me contribute to that first category, those those thinkers. I'm not a thinker. I'm a businessman. You know, I'm not here to to think about the great philosophical questions and the big sort of systemic questions about economics. But I know that there are some young, really good young students who are capable of thinking in this direction. Why don't I help them by, you know, funding their PhDs or something, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Would that be a sufficient enough work from him as an individual for him to say, okay, I've tried my best and I'm I'm doing my obligations to the best of my ability. Yeah, I don't say why not. Okay. Um, again, let's think about this in concrete terms. What, what, what's the opposite option? What's the what are we comparing this to? He has to go and talk about the caliphate yeah, to everyone. Yeah, no, no. And... See, that's just that's no, that's some. Okay, again, okay. If we said the 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 the, the alternative was he has to join the intellectual work. Yes. Then we're pushing people. And saying everyone has to fit this certain thing, certain mold. Yeah. But I think we recognise as we said that people have their uh, people have their talents and their abilities and their inclinations, which is the way Allah has created us. Yeah. Some people will uh, be much more inclined to the intellectual, the philosophical, the theoretical. Other people are much more hands-on. Mm-hmm. That's perfectly fine as long as we are contributing. Um, uh, and as and as long as from an Ummah perspective, the, the Obligations are being duly undertaken. That's okay. the point of sufficiency, right. right? Yeah. Are they sufficiently being undertaken? Mm. 
Because otherwise, you know, because what, what I'm trying to avoid is to say, well, everyone can do whatever they're good at, but then that leaves some things undone. So there doesn't be sufficiency. Yeah. And that may require in some cases people to um, push themselves to do something they may not otherwise have done. Mm. But in origin, the, the Ummah's got immense resources, got immense, tal immense talents, got immense numbers. Mm. I don't think that we face that problem. Okay. So yes, the businessman who has money to contribute uh, can contribute. In, he can he can contribute in certain areas and not in other other areas because right. that means you'll be putting more in those important things. Now, I think what's important to understand here when we talk about that third category and, and, and lay, lay Muslims or common people, for one of better descriptions, um, there is a key there is a key role that as an ummah we want to make sure we have amongst uh, amongst us as a whole, mm. as a collective, which is the um, the correct or the right understanding of Islam as what we described a comprehensive way of life and that this is part of it. We definitely want that. Well, because we, what you don't want is, you know, the people who are working in the first couple of buckets are doing their thing, but the ummah as a whole is somewhere else, mm. right? Because it's, it's, we're working with and for the ummah. Okay. Okay. And so, yes. Now that work tees in nicely to the, the very good work that m many, most of our ulama, most of our uh, uh, Muslim teachers and people are involved in, which is teaching Islam. Right. Teaching, living, practicing, breathing Islam. Right. Um, part of which is Fardain. A lot of it is, is not Fardain. It's the Fardain components and there's Fard Kifai components of what's being taught. So this is where, this is where I think there is a role for everyone, mm. but it's very basic, right? Teaching. Teach, like understanding. Right. If you think about it in terms of the objective, Muslims need to, and this is just part of, you know, the understanding Islam properly. Yeah. Right. What is the deen at the basic level and understanding that this is part of it. It's not something auxiliary. It's not something supplementary. Mm. It's not something that if we had to be great, but you know, otherwise things are fine. They're not. I mean, do, do you think there is a failing there? I mean, you know, can we describe the caliphate to be a forgotten obligation that there is, you know, in that uh, we're talking about the general sphere, the citizenry, that we don't sufficiently talk about the caliphate yeah, yeah, in absolutely. this sense. Yeah, but not only the caliphate. Yeah. I think this goes beyond, in, because of the way things have panned out, because of the fact that secular power has been dominant, mm. uh, we've imbued um, certain aspects of secular thinkings or liberal atomistic individualist thinking right um which means that it's not that i mean it's not that in the seminaries and elsewhere uh aspect the, the communal aspects of islam are not taught but they but they but it's that they're taught in very theoretical ways mm. this part of islam it was there in the past here's the history okay but what, what about today right i mean that link is missing and this is where i think there needs to be work mm. and this is where uh, larger subsets of the ummah are involved, both the teachers, the imams, the scholars, but all the people being taught, okay, uh, which is that, um, and again, it's not that then, it's not that, okay, uh, it's not that the, you know, the let's say the teacher in Al-Azhar has to go, he's uh, the program and he's what we're doing and let's all get involved. Mm -hmm. But the, 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 there needs to be a connection between the theory and the fact that it's a live obligation, mm -hmm. okay? And that, and that can connect up with saying, and look, and these are the, here's the people that are, are doing this, 
we should support them in whatever way we can. So we have to keep Whilst, the, yeah. Yeah, the caliphate consciousness alive. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. The, 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 the political consciousness of Muslims, yeah. Yeah. caliphate consciousness, whatever name we give it. Yeah. But And really, it's just, I'd rather just make it part of properly understanding what Islam is. Mm. And it ties into our where we started. If this is a, a pillar, a key part of the din, yeah. which it is, yeah. then we can't cut it off when we're teaching Islam. Okay, um, and so this is how I see. This is how I would say it working that the, the, the imams and scholars that are teaching Islam in the seminaries, in the madaris, in the masajid, in the halaqa, anywhere, are doing a great job, and they're fulfilling a communal obligation. Mm. Okay, and so this is this is how we should be looking at it. You've got these multiple communal obligations, and you want to look at them in a way where they're tied to each other, and they complement each other. Yeah, not in a way where uh, they seem to be intention and uh, one comes at the expense of the other well because there is sometimes this uh, discussion out there that when someone engages in these communal obligations maybe charity or maybe you know um, studying beyond the basics islam or creating sort of seminaries for uh mushtahids or for for established scholars that uh, some may s suggest that this work is somehow not that important in view of the fact that the caliphate is the mother of all obligations yeah. and one needs to worry about this before worrying about, you know, uh, yeah. the, the those secondary activities. Yeah, um, the problem that's, that exists, and I think that's a problem, problematic way of, of thinking about it, mm -hmm. it's the wrong way of conceptualizing the priority. Okay. It's the wrong way of conceptualizing the fundamental importance of the caliphate yeah and and i think it's easy to see when you say that there are other communal obligations so what do you, you know what do you suggest mm -hmm. to this to the you know hypothetical interloc interlocutor mm -hmm. what is being suggested about all the other communal obligations yes in the all those obligations would be more properly executed in the context of a caliphate yeah but you can't just give them up in the proverbial meantime Right, so I think that's the wrong way to think about it. Mm. And why does it need to be thought about in that way in the first place? Where, as I said, you can think of the various communal obligations as part of the same, tied together, mm. you know, pearls in the same necklace, if you will. Um, that that all work in the same direction. Now, here's the problem. Part of it, I think there is a valid concern there. I don't want to dismiss that entirely. I think there is a wrong way of thinking about it. That's that's behind that type of thinking. But there's also a valid concern because. Some people doing the charity, doing the teaching, are doing it in a way, same point, where they're putting the two obligations at loggerheads. Mm -hmm. So uh, you know, think about the scholar or the imam whose focus is to teach the fundamentals of Islam because he or she sees that Muslims are away from Islam. Uh, we've got this wave of, you know, um, attacks on our fundamentals, you know, whatever, that's now, but we always need the teaching of the fundamentals of Islam. So some scholars focusing on the fundamentals, as they're doing that, when the topic of the caliphate comes up, they dismiss it. Okay. It's like, oh, that's not important. Uh, we can't do anything about that now. There's a pessimism. There's a learned helplessness. Whatever the cause may be, there are various causes, but they dismiss it. Or the person doing the charity work is doing the charity work. That's great. We need it. But they have a dismissive or a problematic attitude when the topic of the caliphate comes up. Mm. As opposed to the idea that we're doing this charity, 
because you need to do it. It's an obligation. People out there are dying. People out there are poor. People out there are, there are orphans. There are widows, et cetera, et cetera. Whilst acknowledging that, yes, all those problems would be ideally and more properly dealt with under a governance and therefore we need that and we need people to be working on that. Yeah. Right? So you know, it's the same point. Like, yeah. you've got these multiple tasks that the Ummah needs to do as an Ummah. The Ummah is vast, vast talent, vast resources, numbers, right? And we can work on these different areas whilst looking at them as complementary and not looking at them as intention at loggerheads. So really it's, it, it's how we're going about it that's either creating the problem or um, um, he's creating the problem, right? But it can be changed to be done in a way that is better, is more positive. Osman, after the fall of the caliphate, many Islamic groups were set up to either explicitly or implicitly re-establish the caliphate. So I'm thinking about Ikhwan al-Muslimin, uh, notable thinkers like Hassan al-Banna or Sayyid Qutb, who talked a lot about Islamic rule and, and the need for eventually mm -hmm. uh, the unification of the Muslim world. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sheikh Taqid in Nabhani from Hezbo Tahrir uh, very explicitly talked about the caliphate as a priority and in many ways probably kept the idea alive uh, in the Muslim world. Uh, you've got in Pakistan uh, Isra Ahmed and you've got uh, Maududi, of course, who uh, very fundamentally talked about the need for Muslim reunification in, in, in many ways, even if it was a long-term aspiration. What can we learn, if anything, from their experiences and their writings. Well, we've learned a lot. Um, even before that, I think it's it's important to point out that the reason a lot of these movements and a lot of these scholars did this work is because they saw the problem firsthand. Mm -hmm. They saw the concrete realities on the ground and what it meant to go from uh, a situation where you had the caliphate or you had Islamic governance of some sort to it's gone. And that's important because sometimes you know, people who are born in the latter reality don't appreciate the the difference that it causes. So they were these were people who understood this from a theoretical perspective, but the, also from the practical reality that they faced. And they stood up to do what they could in the situation that they had. And may Allah reward all of them for it. And we any work that any any work that we do now, that we ought to do now, that people are doing now is is standing on their shoulders. And so uh we ask Allah to reward them for that. Um, and there's something to be learned from all of them. Mm. And, I, and I think what's, what separates a lot of the names that you mentioned is details, approaches, different differences in methodology, uh, all of which is important. It's an important discussion, no doubt. Mm. Um, but what combines them is the appreciation of the obligation, the appreciation of the task at hand, and the appreciation that um, this task has to be done. Mm. People need to get involved. People need to get there. To, to, to roll their sleeves up, yeah. as it were. Uh, and yeah, I think uh, Sheikh Taqi ad stands out to the extent that we're talking about the caliphate. Um, not that the others did not, were not talking about the same referent, if you will, the same concept of Islamic governance. Yeah. But to the extent that we're talking more specifically about the caliphate, then definitely an explicit focus, keeping the name alive, keeping the word alive. Um, the theorizing done on that, I think, stands out, and uh, we, we have a lot to learn from that. Again, however, as I said, what I said about Mawardi and Ibn Khaldun and all the, the medieval Islamic greats uh, applies to the 20th century um, heavyweights, if you will, um, which is that our task is not to copy-paste what they did, it's to 
engage our reality as they engage this. And I think this is where some of the problem occurs, perhaps naturally, perhaps expectedly, because all of these scholars uh, had organized efforts, groups, parties, jama'at, um, and and that can, they, there can be a tendency for that to towards um, sort of coalescing, fossilizing around certain principles, certain ideas, and a certain sacralization and a certain quasi sacralization of the founding figures as well can be the case. So we have to be wary of that. But the point is, uh, I think the the pitfall that we have to avoid, and that uh, in some cases, to to a certain extent, I think all the groups have or the larger movements have fallen in, is 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 not to do that. Is not to go, well, here's the solutions that so-and-so came up in the 1960s and 1950s, and we're just going to persist with these, mm. right? Rather, it's to appreciate what they did, which is to look at their reality, understand it, figure out what needs to be done, and, and attempt to do that. Mm. Attempt to do that, and as human efforts, there's going to be successes, there's going to be failures. Correct. What we need to do is have that critical mindset and go, okay, this is what looks like the successes. This is what looks like the failures. Let's build on the successes and let's see what we can do about the failures, knowing that we too will fail. We too will, right? So there is, again, that tendency as humans, we do this where it's like, uh, you know, so-and-so, and this is not just 20th century Islamist movements. Yeah. It's across the board, right? Think about think about the theological, uh, the Manhaji movements, right? This idea, whether it be Salafi movements, Sufi movements, the idea that, uh, everyone got it wrong for after this this and this scholar came up, Ibn Taymiyyah came up or Al Ghazali came up and he just he sorted everything out. Mm-hmm. Right? And now we're taking this forward. So th- I think two phenomena take place. One is this fossilization, this pseudo quasi saccharization mm-hmm. of certain figures uh who then uh, become almost infallible, right? Except that because the, you can't say that explicitly, so you say, Oh yeah, they had they had these small mistakes, but otherwise they were great. Um and then when you adopt it, somehow you become uh, quasi-infallible, right? We, got, we have to humanize and say that and, and you know, not only play uh, nominal service to the, the saying of uh, Imam Malik that everyone is, everyone's saying is taken and rejected except the Prophet except the, 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 uh, the person in this grave mm. in uh, Masjid al-Nabawi. Mm. Um, if that's true, if we truly believe that, then that's going to be the case. So every person is going to have successes, have failures. We build on the successes. We learn from the failures. And we know that we're going to make mistakes ourselves. Mm. So we've been prepared for that. And it's a constant it's a constant effort to to do our best and uh, to rely on Allah Ta'ala with the one who guides us to to the victory that he's promised. Yeah. Umar. Uh, Uthman, we're here in Istanbul because uh, we're attending this week the Ummatics Conference. And I know you are... Uh, a senior member, if I can say that, of the Ummatics Institute. Um, uh, tell me, w- what's your aim? Why are you uh, meeting here in Istanbul? And uh, what's the flavour of the, the conference that we're about to attend? Um, the Ummatics project, uh, which I'm a part of, I contribute to that yeah. modest contribution. Um, the, the, the project started a couple of years ago. Uh, it's a it's one effort amongst what we hope will be multiple efforts that mm-hmm. focus on these issues mm-hmm. of the ummah of uh, Muslims being able to th- first of all think as Muslims with our own categories with our own thoughts with our own instead of always responding being on the back foot being reactionary 
or merely uh, taking foreign categories as, as given for us. And so the name Omatics is trying to do that yeah. as an example. But yeah, we're trying to think about these issues. Uh, various projects and initiatives have been done in the last two years, and this is our first conference. Um, the idea of the conference is to bring together experts, scholars, uh, to start thinking about these various issues. Um, you know, so in other words, the first bucket that I described, we're trying to focus on that area, and we need focused efforts as well. Yeah. Um, we don't need, uh, uh, you know, jack of all trades. We need specialization. We need focus. So we're focusing in this area, and this particular conference is um, looking at these issues: the nation state. How do we overcome the nation state? How do we think about the nation state? How do we think about a post-nation state era in which? Um, how do we conceptualize Islamic governance beyond the nation state? And so we've. Uh, um, alhamdulillah, there are 40 or 50 presenters that are coming from different parts of the world. Mm. We've chosen Istanbul. We want to do this in the Muslim world, and this is one of the areas where a lot of good work is happening. Uh, there's a symbolic significance with uh, Istanbul. Previously, Constantinople has always been very, very mm. significant. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's taking forward, starting taking forward a very important conversation yeah. that we hope will be built on to... Uh, contribute and take forward that work of really thinking seriously, creatively, seriously, critically about what does Islamic governance look like in in the 21st century. We've waited a hundred years uh, in the with the absence of a central authority, a caliphate. Uh, will we have to wait another hundred years before a caliphate is realizable? Allahu alam, if it's another 100, if it's 20, if it's 50, if it's 200, we don't know. Um, and in fact, that type of sort of forecasting could be part of the work that people think about in a serious way, not, I don't mean forecasting where, you know, we tend to do around around lunch and dinner hmm. off the top of our heads. But there is, you know, there, there is, in fact, there's serious work that happens in the academy under the title of uh, Future Studies, where there, there are serious projections and various uh, political regimes and leaders do this work. That's an important area. But nevertheless, I think um, the Islamic tradition is more about really trying to understand what our obligations are and putting our best foot forward to do them. Um, as opposed to, not as opposed to, but there's not too much I think we can put in the basket of how long it might take. Right. Um, I do think that... Um, it will be a while. Uh, there is a lot of work to be done. Um, notwithstanding that the efforts we spoke about earlier have been significant. A lot of, in other words, a lot of work has been done since 1924. Yes. Um, uh, but a lot of a lot of work remains, and uh, I think our focus needs to be on understanding the obligation, um, assisting. The ummah more generally understanding it so that more people can be involved in the efforts, those who have the capabilities. Um, and really to put our best foot forward for that and uh, leaving the rest as it is to, to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Osman, but it's been really a fascinating interview. Jazakallah khair for your time today. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. It's an honor and privilege to have this discussion. Please remember to subscribe to our social media and YouTube channels. And head over to our website thinkinmuslim.com to sign up to my weekly newsletter. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.